The following is a teaching message from the chapel in Tiatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz. So, last Sunday we finished almost four and a half years in uh, Luke's Gospel and in the Book of Acts. Reading through the narrative as Luke tells it on the life of Jesus in the Gospel and the birth of the church in the book of Acts. And today we begin a new journey. Won't take four and a half years, I'm sure. But it's a very old journey. It's the book of beginnings, the the book of origins, the book of Genesis. Tradition attributes the authorship to Moses. Moses having received some by direct revelation from God and the remainder, no doubt, by oral histories and traditions and stories passed down from generation to generation. If you struggle with any of the story being true or accurate, then maybe one of the questions you need to ask is one of the ones we use in the Discovery Bible study. Rather than say, what will I change because of this, if this is true, what would I change or what would I do differently? You see, Discovery Bible Study focuses on obedience-based discipleship. Hearing God speak and acting in obedience. And it's that invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. Test him. Take the word that he gives you, the, the revelation, and act in accordance with it and see if God is faithful to what he has declared. Whereas Luke's Gospel speaks of the birth and the life of Jesus, the Messiah, the book of Acts speaks of the birth and the life of the early church. But Genesis speaks of the birth of everything, of time, creation, humanity, sin, community, of the nations, of the nation of Israel, of God's plan of redemption, and so much more. Many people, including sadly many Christians, write off the first ten chapters of Genesis as being little more than myth and legend, allegory or poetry, maybe having a a spiritual meaning, but no real foundation in history and truth. The problem with that approach is that we often... Uh, lose so much if we lose the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis. And there is so much in the New Testament that acknowledges, in fact, so much in the New Testament that depends upon the reality of these first 10 chapters in the book of Genesis. For example, Matthew 25. You know the story Jesus is talking about at the end times and the, the, there will be like a man going out to sort the, the sheep from the goats. And at the end of that, Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Jesus declares that the kingdom of God is not a new idea. It is a kingdom whose origins date back to creation. And that makes no sense if there was no creation. In a few weeks' time, we're going to look at the creation of man. 
And in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, But at the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Not only is Jesus making some very significant statements about the origins of humanity, he also makes a statement that has much to say to the confusion and the lies that are being peddled in our generation and the evils that have plagued endless generations who have ignored that truth. But more of that in weeks to come. In the upper room, Jesus prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. So Jesus says not only was there a beginning, there was a before the beginning. And Jesus says that in the before the beginning, the Father loved him and gave him glory. And if you don't believe there's a beginning, and if you don't believe therefore there's a before the beginning, then all of this is called into question. But Jesus believed there was a beginning, and a before the beginning. Not only that, in Ephesians 1.4 we are told that God chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Take a moment to think that in. Before the creation of the world, God chose you and you and you and you in Christ to be holy and blameless. You know, we love Psalm 139, which God saw, you know, before I was born, God saw my unformed body. But, but God was thinking about you before the creation of the world. And we're not just relying on thoughts. We're told that Jesus... Oh, there's a little note I almost missed. If you think that Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago, wrestle with that one. Because we're told that he is the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. There's an ad, I think it's for Vodafone, and it's got Stephen Hawking talking about time flows like a river. It doesn't flow at the same speed in all places. Tim Stewart's not around at the moment, but next time he's back, ask him, or ask me, and I can give you a copy of his master's thesis on time. I managed to get about halfway through, and I didn't run out of time, I just ran out of brain space. <laughs> Wrestling with... What is time? Because we understand so much more about time that time is not just a straight line. And we see that and it makes more sense of scripture as we understand that. And John testified about Jesus that in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is an eyewitness. So when he refers back to the creation, he does not do so on hearsay or because he read the Old Testament. He was there. And next week we start off with, and God said, let there be light. Jesus is the word that God spoke that brought everything into being. Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. See, if you, if you want to unpack it and do away with the whole understanding of God as the creator of all things, then you actually don't unpack the first ten chapters of the Bible. You unpack and unravel the entire scripture message. There are other New Testament references that lend weight to the existence or the, the essential nature of these ten chapters. And we will come to that as we unpack and unfold the story of Genesis. But the, the New Testament doesn't ignore these ten chapters and neither does Jesus. So then the question comes, what do we do with the science? And I have to admit that I don't have all the answers. Glenn probably had a few more than me, because I know it's one of his pet subjects as well. But we don't have all the answers. And I have more than a few questions, and that's why we've got eternity coming up when I can get some of those questions answered. But when I have to choose between biblical truth and the facts of science, I will lean and I will cling on to biblical truth. That is, takes into account, of course, that I won't read things into the scripture that aren't there. Because some things that we defend as being biblical, when we actually look at the scripture, it's like, actually, if we'd thought about it differently, then it doesn't necessarily conflict. But as we begin our reading this morning, these first three words highlight something really important. In the beginning. If I was standing in a church a hundred years ago and I uttered those three words, have got three words into the New Testament, Sorry, into the, into the scriptures. Three words in the scriptures, and already scientific community would be arguing with me. Because a hundred years ago, the prevailing scientific opinion was that there was no beginning. That the, the earth and the creation had been, well, the, can't say that word, can we? The earth and everything, the universe, had been eternally existent. We're so familiar today with the theory of the Big Bang that it's easy to forget that when it was first proposed back in the 1930s, it was so far out of step with scientific opinion. Up until that time, the prevailing scientific understanding was that the world had always existed, that the universe was eternal. To suggest that there was a beginning was totally unscientific. To suggest that the universe had a beginning was totally unscientific until it became scientific. And scripture was proved to be correct. You see, having a beginning created a problem in another area of science, which is the whole evolution argument. If the universe had always existed, if the earth had always existed, that gives an infinite amount of time for all those random changes to occur necessary for the world as we see it, to evolve. But the moment they had to acknowledge that there was only 64 billion years, or however many billion years it is, that they say since the Earth, 
suddenly when you do the numbers, when you start crunching it, the statistics become extremely small. The probability becomes extremely small that all this stuff could happen simply by random chance. And so they begin to revisit the theory of evolution. But then we became another problem when we got into the 1900s because we had a very simplistic view of biology in the 1800s. See, the eye was just a, a single thing that evolved. But as we got into the 20th century, as we got into the 1900s, we discovered uh, genetics and, and DNA, and, and we discovered that the eye is actually an amazing, amazingly complex thing. And the eye in itself doesn't work if the connections to the brain aren't there. And if, it's just so complex. And so the statistical challenges become fascinatingly huge. I'll come back to that next week because I've got an article at home that I'm working my way through which talks about do we need a new theory of evolution. It's not a Christian article. It's some in the scientific community who are saying there are so many issues with our current theory of evolution. We need a new theory of evolution. We need a new understanding because realistically this one isn't working for us anymore. And of course there's a major backlash from a whole bunch of people who are so determined to, to hold on to what they know. So now is probably a good time to pick up on a couple of principles we learned back when we were going through Luke and Acts. We are not told everything in Scripture. But we are told everything that we need to know. In Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. As Stephen just said before, we know everything that we need to know. We don't know everything, but we need every, know everything we need to know. God has revealed it to us. In, in the great faith chapter where uh, the writer of Hebrews is recounting all the great heroes of the faith, it says that faith is the confidence we have uh, that, uh, in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was made out of what was what out of, was not made out of what was visible. And so we have that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Or as the psalmist affirms, the earth is the Lord's. He not only made it, because he made it, it's his. He gets to decide how it works. He gets to decide how it's used. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. He made it, therefore it belongs to him. You know, we didn't create intellectual property. Intellectual property law, whoever makes it, whoever thinks it up, it belongs to them. God is the ultimate owner of intellectual property for the universe. It is his. And so Genesis continues that in the, uh, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I was fascinated because when I looked in my online Bible I didn't see footnotes in this passage but 
If I get out my trusty hard copy real Bible, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was, and then there's a little A beside that, which if I look down in the footnotes, it says, or possibly became formless and void. I'm fascinating, fascinated because I realise my online Bible does have footnotes, but it doesn't have footnotes for that verse. Because I think they kind of realised that there was something weak in making it possibly became. See, the, the idea of the footnote uh, was, was uh, an attempt to suggest that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then everything was destroyed. The earth became formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and God was ho- the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then everything else that followed that is a recreation. It's called gap theory. You can go and have a look at it. I remember hearing it years ago. I was fascinated. For a long time I thought, this is brilliant. Kind of explains it. Kind of fits with the, the fact that the earth looks really, really old. Here's my answer. Actually, this is my daughter's answer. She confused a science teacher at, in about fifth form. She said, so when God created Adam, did he create him as a newborn babe? We kind of assume he created him as an adult male. Adam was one second old, but he probably looked 25, maybe 30. She said, why could God not have created the world looking old? And the science teacher's going, So the world looks old. That doesn't mean it is old. Some of us are older than others and some of us just look older than others. You you, you can get in all sorts of trouble. But that's the reality. You, You cannot judge how old the earth is by how old it looks. And there are so many things about the way they dated and that we can bring into discussions and again, either with me or Glenn. Um, but the problem with the gap theory is that it says that right there between right there in verse 2 there was this massive dis- death and destruction but the problem is one of the key themes of scripture is that death and destruction entered the world through one man Sin, death and destruction entered the world through Adam. And because we don't get to that till Genesis 3, the gap theory falls apart. Because suddenly it undermines. Because, and the problem with that is, if death and destruction came in before sin entered the world, when God deals with sin, the whole point of dealing with sin is to deal with death and destruction. And if death and destruction predated sin, then dealing with sin doesn't deal with death and destruction. And so when you start unpacking and twisting scripture, now I have a couple of other places that I really quite uh, like to wrestle with. And again, it's footnotes that were in the Bible, but they're not there now because I think they've realised they're kind of stupid. And this is when God is talking to Job. God is talking to Job. Job chapter 40. And he says to Job, Look at Behemoth, which I made along with you, which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength it has in its loins. What power in the muscles of its belly. 
Its tail sways like a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are close-knit. Its bones are tubes of bronze and its limbs like rods of iron. And my little footnote in my Bible used to say, could be a hippopotamus or an elephant. Have you seen the tail on a hippopotamus or an elephant? Now I see they've added another little note in that it could be could have been talking about the trunk, not the tail. But even then, I don't. Th- I, I've, I've been to Thailand. I've been around the elephants. Even then, I don't see that their trunks are like a, a cedar of Lebanon. It's like it doesn't fit the imagery. It's like God is talking about some creature that is way beyond an elephant and a hippopotamus. And then in 41, God says to Job, I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armour? Who dares to open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Its back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no ear can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of the dawn. Flames stream from its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Its breast sets coals ablaze and flames darts from its mouth. And it says, possibly a crocodile. I've watched quite a few uh, animal documentaries. I have yet to see a crocodile breathing. You know, see, there was a time when we tried to accommodate science. Now, that never used to worry me until I discovered that the first reports of uh, discovery of dinosaur fossils date back like 345 years. So it's like, if you go back this far, what were they basing this on? What, was, what possessed them to describe this animal that breathes fire at a time when we certainly didn't know about dinosaurs and the like? But these things sound, certainly to me as a young kid, and even now as a big kid, this stuff sounds like dinosaurs. And how can God say, look at, if these things had died out before we were around? Somewhere in the human story, it seems that dinosaurs and people lived kind of side by side. Now, if you're not sure about that, go and talk to someone from China. Where did they come up with the dragons? Unlike any creature that is, and suddenly we discover that maybe there were actually creatures like that. What do we not understand? What do we have to assume? don't know where the Glens come across it, but I came across years ago an article that talked about a fossil of a human footprint inside of a dinosaur footprint. That suggests that one was following the other. Do we necessarily have to believe the scientific story? Because there's other evidence that suggests that there is a different narrative and the scripture tells a different narrative. Maybe science offers some explanations, but I find that scripture 
is consistently more reliable. And we have watched as scientific theory has unpacked and modified generation by generation with new discoveries. And scripture is solid. You know, one of the ones, and I'll probably come back to it next week, is that we were told that seven days is not long enough for God to create the heavens and the earth. Well, firstly, God can do anything. But seven days isn't long enough, but they've now discovered that the expansion of the universe to almost what it is now happened within fractions of a second after that Big Bang. So it didn't take this massively long period of time. They've discovered that it was this massive sudden expansion. So the universe can expand to almost what it is now in a few milliseconds, even less. But seven days is not long enough for God just simply to create the heavens and the earth. Science has not got it all nailed. Now there are some things around the scientific evidence and and then I'm looking at and I scratch my head and I say, one day I'll have answers, but if I have to choose what I believe, I will believe the word of God. And so we're told that the earth was formless and void, formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In John chapter 3, we're told, uh, light had come into the world but the people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. However, emptiness and darkness are not evil. I've got the quotes marked in there. The verse of scripture says that light has come into the world but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And my point is, but emptiness and darkness are not necessarily evil, they're just a place where evil likes to hide. Because if we step forward to Exodus where Moses is at the foot of Mount Sinai, the children of Israel are there and when the people saw the thunder and heard the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. God is often at work in the darkness. When there seems to be no light and things are dark, it's really easy to go, where's God? And God is right there. So when you find yourself in a dark and empty place, be encouraged by God's creation story. For in the darkness and emptiness, God is at work. As it was in the first creation, so it is in the new creation. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. God is not finished. God is just beginning. The word that's translated here about speaking of the Spirit hovering is also found in Deuteronomy, where it says like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carry them aloft. This is a uh, and a live thing and, and I, I just picture the Holy Spirit as a dove 
one of the words that they uh, read said that it carried that idea of fluttering. You see, imagine the, the dove fluttering across the water. This is not a, an end of a story. This is not a dark, depressing place. See, one of the arguments against the creation story and, and, and the idea for the gap theory is that uh, God wouldn't create something that was dark and horrible. But God starts with nothing. And out of that he speaks light. His Holy Spirit speaks in the midst of the darkness. And so thinking back to last Sunday, the Holy Spirit who came upon Mary so that she conceived and gave birth to Messiah. And then we talked about the Holy Spirit who came upon a group of gathered disciples and gave birth to a church. And here we have the same Holy Spirit back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 who was hovering coming upon the waters to bring life. To bring life to life itself. And so we stand in awe and wonder and expectancy. I picture those verses. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters, formless and empty, full of expectancy, full of awe and wonder. For God is at work revealing his glory. And one day Paul will write to the believers at Rome, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. I believe that's the number one reason why people want to deny creation by God. Because they want to deny his ownership, not only of the creation, but over their own lives. And so I want to finish this morning with the words of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. I'm looking forward to this journey through Genesis. The beginning of all things. God's foundation which brings context and reality and understanding to everything else that follows. Thank you for listening to this message from the chapel in Teatatu. For more information about the chapel, please visit www.thechapel.org.nz or email info at thechapel.org.nz.